This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Farm Tank. Today, I'm going to be talking to Chris Rivera. Chris Rivera spent more than 30 years in leadership roles throughout the biotech industry. From 2009 to 2015, Mr. Rivera was the president and CEO of Life Science Washington. He has also overseen one of Washington's largest and fastest growing economic industries and has even mentored more than 400 life science startup companies. Right now, he's the co-founder of Wings and the CEO of Nativis. With that, I would like to welcome Chris to the show. Good morning, Jordan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's truly a pleasure having you, Chris. To begin with, I'm insanely intrigued by the science and innovation taking place at Nativis. you got things like mimicking low-frequency sound waves and transmitting signals to humans and animals in crazy ways. It's truly interesting to me and mind-boggling. But the first thing I want to know is the journey of Chris Rivera and how you ended up the CEO of Nativis. Sure. Well, it's been a long and winding road and, and one that I would have never have imagined uh, when I was younger. Uh, I never had the aspirations to become a CEO. I didn't have a clue what biotech was um, back in, in college and even grad school. Um, but, you know, kind of the road started when I was a kid growing up and uh, my, you know, my dad thought, wanted me to become a CPA. He thought that'd be a great career, very solid, stable, etc. And went to college as a freshman, took my uh, freshman course uh, accounting class and about three weeks into it I realized I didn't want to do I didn't want to be an accountant the rest of my life so I dropped that told my dad he was very disappointed but uh, understood and like most kids in college kind of took majored in a number of things in history business uh, tried a variety of things and ended up getting my undergrad in business administration but my mentor uh, my advisor he was a speech pathologist and he was asking me what I wanted to do and what I liked and I told him I like science and math, and so he encouraged me to take uh, one of his, uh, cor- his course in audiology, uh, which is hearing science, and I did, and I really enjoyed the science and the anatomy and physiology part of it, so I ended up getting a, a minor in speech path, and he uh, encouraged me to apply to uh, go to grad school at the University of Oklahoma in their PhD program in audiology, and at that time, it was one of the top programs in the world. I was accepted in the PhD program and uh, started that um, that uh, to become an audiologist as a you know PhD audiologist and uh, about a year into it started thinking about what do I do with a PhD in audiology and you kind of really do one of three things you teach you do research or you're a clinician and again kind of like my experience as an accountant I decided that's not what I wanted to do the rest of my life so finished my master's and uh, decided to go to business school apply to business schools around the country and was accepted at the University of Washington that's what brought me to Seattle and uh, ended up out of out of uh, getting out of school, out of uh, grad school, ended up getting hired by uh, ER Squibbinson, which was a pharmaceutical company, uh, now part of Bristol Myers Squibb, and that's what really exposed me to the pharmaceutical industry, eventually the biotech industry. So that was the beginning of the journey, and you know, kind of the uh, you know the rest of the way kind of took me into biotech and innovative innovative companies and startups, and here I am today at Nativus. 
Sounds like you got a pretty diverse background, Chris. But tell me this. How do you think having a background in business, math, and science really helped um, you sculpt the person and CEO you are today at Nativis? Yeah, well, I think, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a technical person. And obviously, there's a lot of people in our industry that are in my role that came up through the technical side of things. I came up on the business side initially in sales and then eventually in, in business development and management and, um, you know, uh, then eventually, you know, took over in leadership roles and ran divisions of companies and then eventually, you know, started my own company and, um, you know, learned the, learned the industry from kind of that perspective. Um, so I think the you know I think in biotech or in, in life sciences, it's obviously good to have some kind of a, a science background. Uh, again, you don't have to be a PhD or a, an MD, but I think if you have a good solid understanding of of, of anatomy, physiology, you know, biology, uh, that's definitely a good foundation to have. And uh, you know, if you enjoy the business side of it, there's a lot of opportunities, whether it's sales, marketing, business development, you know, commercialization, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, again, I think that it really there's a, a number of different ways to get into the industry and to uh, be successful, and I think and you know, have an enjoyable career. Yeah, it seems like you took the right route, Chris, and the success shows. I want to move to something else, though. Our listeners love learning about real people and the story behind their success. So, could you tell our audience a bit about your early years, perhaps maybe a couple defining moments that impacted your trajectory? Sure. I mean, besides, I think kind of those, um, you know, those kind of moments when uh, I made decisions that, you know, of kind of thinking about what I wanted to do, you know, going forward. Um, I guess one of the approaches I've always taken in life and when I've, you know, given advice to, to, to younger people is I always try to picture myself in three to five years. And what do I want to do? What do I want to be doing? Um, and then try to figure out what's the pathway to get there. So I think, you know, that mentality has helped me at least get, get me to where I've gotten to. And, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, like anything, you make, you make mistakes sometimes, you learn from those mistakes. Um, there's roadblocks that get put up in front of you. You try to, you know, you have to be creative and, and, and adjust. Um, you know, the economy changes, um, things out of your control change, and you have to be, I think, flexible and have the ability to think out of the box and, and, and make adjustments. Um, you know, again, I think the there's been several people in my life that have really helped, you know, kind of define who I am. My father, obviously, was, you know, one of my early role models and somebody that I really uh, admired. Um, he's, he's, not, he's no longer here with us, but, you know, somebody that really taught me a lot about, you know, hard work and education and other things like that. My basketball coach in college was another. He really taught me about team and leadership and how to, you know, pull people together for a common goal. And, uh, you know, the CEO at Genzyme, where I spent almost eight years, uh, Henry Tamir, was also somebody that taught me a lot about, you know, being a pioneer, doing things for the first time nobody else has ever done, and not being afraid to, to uh, not be successful. So, you know, those are some of the, the, some of the moments and I think uh, people in my life that have helped me really kind of uh, have shaped who I am and what I'm doing today. Good deal. I know you uh, just mentioned something about you playing college basketball. That's something I didn't know. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so as a kid growing up, 
you know, really, beca- I played I played most sports like a lot of kids do. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids. My my parents were not athletic or into athletics. Uh, most of my, only my older brother was the only one that really kind of was uh, like sports, and he was the one that really got me into into a variety of sports. But probably in um, junior high and early high school, I really realized that basketball was my passion and and really focused on it. But I remember when I was 10 years old, my oldest sister, um, who's, you know, very accomplished, but she, uh, she was a nun at the time. And she came home for the holidays in Albuquerque, where I grew up, and, and my parents asked her to take me to basketball practice. So she was driving me to basketball practice, and she asked me, you know, do I want to play professional basketball someday? I said, absolutely. I told her I was going to be 6'9 and play in the NBA. And she kind of looked at me and laughed and said, do you realize your dad's 5'10 and your mom's 5'2? I don't think you're going to get have much of a chance to become 6'9. Well, I ended up Growing in college, I was just under six seven. So I always say, if I would have grown those last two 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 plus inches, I might have made it to the NBA. But um, I really loved it. It was a way for me. Also, I, our parents really, um, you know, instilled that education was was vital and critical. At the same time, you know, uh, we we grew up in a modest household, so you know, I I I was the youngest of five, as I mentioned. And, you know, I knew I had to go to college because all of my siblings had already were either had had degrees and even advanced degrees, many of them. And so I knew I had to go and my parents couldn't afford to pay uh, for for my tuition. So I had to figure a way out. And uh, I figured, well, if I can get a basketball scholarship, that's the way I can go to college. And that's what actually took me to Oklahoma uh, was uh, I got got recruited to to go play there. And, uh, you know, the rest was history, as I said. Tell me this, Chris. What is the best lesson you've learned in basketball throughout your college years in your life that has really taught you something and given you something to contribute as a CEO of Nativas? Well, I think, as I mentioned a little bit ago, my, my coach really instilled in me um, teamwork, uh, leadership. A lot of the skills I use as a manager, uh, I learned from him. You know, he, he taught me that you know he, he told me one time i don't i don't treat all of my players the same i yell at some players i can't yell at others and he you know when one day he pulled me aside he goes you're the one of the guys i yell at because i know you can take it and you learn from it and the other players on the team learn that you know it's it's okay that you know I, if i do that to you that they you know they they see that and and they understand um, but again, I think one of the main main lessons I learned was that everybody's unique. You have to understand what motivates people, and I think if you can find underlying mo- motivating factors in individuals, it really can um, you know help you build a team, coalesce. I think the other part was just you know having a strategy and make sure that you articulate that strategy to your entire team so everybody understands what their role is. And having a common goal and objective, and then you know making sure that you're following up and 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 holding people accountable uh, to what that what their what their roles and responsibilities are. So, I would say a, a large part of my success as a leader uh, throughout my career, really, I've I've got to you know you know give it give a lot of credit to my coach. I think that's some great advice, Chris, for people inspiring to be leaders, people running businesses, and just people being a part of businesses. I think it plays into all of that. But I want to talk about a little bit more about your career. I understand you founded and led Hyperion Therapeutics, which was sold in 2015 to Horizon Pharma for over $1 billion. What were some personal highs and lows associated with that venture, and what were some of the tools you walked away with? 
Um, yeah, great, great question. So uh, Hyperion was a great um, experience for me, and it really was the first time I became a CEO. Um, one of my one of my bosses at Genzyme uh, when I was there, <clears throat> we were having dinner, and he goes, "So you know you're going you know you're going to become a CEO someday." And that was the first time I had even ever considered it, and I didn't really have that again thought or aspiration. So he actually left Genzyme and went into became a venture capitalist. And uh, the company that I had been at before uh, Hyperion was called Tersica, and I was leading a, a licensing transaction, and we were about to be acquired by, by a French company called Ipsen. And so I was actually playing golf. I was on the golf course walking up the 17th fairway, and my cell phone went off. And, and I normally don't carry my cell phone on the golf course, but I just happened to have it. And I looked at and it, was, it was my uh, former boss. His name is Mike Robb. And Mike called me and said, how do you want to be a – how about becoming a, a founding CEO? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, we just had a partner meeting today. We need to find some entrepreneurs that we can uh, seed, give them some money uh, to start companies. So that's how Hyperion was founded. So myself and a couple of others um, started looking for assets that we could license and acquire. And so I negotiated a, 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 a spin out a division of a publicly traded company. Um, the company was Metasys, and the division I spun out was called Ucyclid Pharma. And that's what became Hyperion. But you know, through that process, I was told by a number of people, both in the industry and in and my investors, that there's no way you're going to get this deal done because Metasys was notorious for for uh, having been very difficult to do uh, partnership or licensing deals with. Well, we were successful. Uh, upon the signing of the licensing deal, uh, I raised $45 million uh, in 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 capital and then $15 million in in venture in venture debt. And uh, we started Hyperion. We went we went from a company of three people to about 45, 50 people within six months. Uh, we com- started commercialization of a couple of products that had already been approved. We started you know product development of, of some other products in the pipeline. And we're off to the races. We were, we were uh, meeting all our objectives, exceeding them, having a great time. And then uh, the stock market crash of 2008 hit, and uh, we realized very quickly that there was no venture money in sight for quite a while. Uh, so I immediately, unfortunately, had to scale the company back from about 50 employees to eight. Uh, I just kept my clinical team on to develop the product. I stayed on as CEO for about another year, or, or uh, on the board for about another year, helped them raise the C round in 2009 uh, when we met our objectives with our phase two product. And uh, at that time, we raised $69 million, which was one of the largest venture raises in that in that year. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot about perseverance. Uh, I learned a lot about, you know, we thought that we were going to be, you know, the next uh, Genzyme uh, until, again, things outside of our control, like the economy, really changed the focus and what we had to do. But I also had to also realize you know, even though I basically laid myself off, in essence, um, and you know, t- I had to do what was best for the for the company and the shareholders, and it really taught me a lot about you know uh, what a CEO really is and, and decisions and sacrifices you might have to make in those in that role. Sounds like you really learned a lot at Hyperion. Tell me a little bit more about Life Science Washington, though. I understand the group brings together research institutions, investors, and innovators to grow the state's life science economy. You were the CEO for seven years, and from what I understand, you were very instrumental in helping build the life science industry in Seattle. What did you really see happening in this space, though? Or I guess what I'm asking is, are we on the verge of a technical revolution in health, science, and medicine? 
Well, um, I'll answer your couple questions there, but um, so really one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to run um, Life Science Washington was, you know, I had been in the biotech industry at that time for probably, you know, 20, 20 plus years. Um, I had spent most of my career commuting either to Boston or to San Francisco uh, because the Washington biotech industry had not been as, as uh, vibrant as it, it could have been in my estimate estimation. Um, so it really was an opportunity for me, especially after Hyperion, and, and I you know, wasn't a, a full acting CEO at the time. I thought this is an opportunity in, in, for me in my life to really kind of give back and uh, you know do something for the for the community and the, and the industry here. So um, you know, in, during my tenure, we were able to triple the size of the industry and the organization in that seven years. Uh, we started you know mentoring program uh, where we actually would help entrepreneurs and, and scientists that had good ideas or ideas that, that thought, you know, they could start a company. Um, we mentored, as you mentioned, over 400, and many of those I was personally involved with. Uh, we started and formed a medtech angel group, Wings. Um, you know, when we, looked at the, when we looked at the industry, especially during the, that time in the economy, we really identified there were three gaps um, missing or three holes in, in, in helping the, the industry grow. Um, it was really capital, talent, and innovation. So we, we, that's why we put that, that kind of organization together to help these companies. We probably close to 60% of the 400 ended up raising money in some form or fashion. Many of them are here today. Many of them are public. Many of them have been acquired. So, you know, the, the program, I think, was extremely successful, and it's been expanded um, across the state. But uh, so that was very satisfying. But I knew after five, six, seven years that I, I wanted to get back into the industry in an operational role. And I, you know, sitting in that in the chair um, that I was at at, at, at Washington, Life Science Washington, it really gave me a, a bird's eye view of innovation uh, that was around opportunity. Um, not only was I the, the CEO for the state of Washington, I also was the chairman of the board for the National Council for State Bioscience Association. So. I saw companies and technology all over the world, and you know, when I ran into Nativis in 2011, uh, I was fascinated by the the, uh, the technology and, and the potential. Uh, I joined the board in 2013, and then came in as CEO in 2016. Um, and you know, when you asked me about is there, are we on the verge of you know a a you know a whole technical revolution? Absolutely, I would say in the last decade, there's probably been more advancement in our industry than the previous three or four decades. Uh, if you look at big data, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, robotics, it's, it's amazing the technology that's available today, personalized medicine. I mean, if you look at, you know, CAR-T and some of these other treatments and therapies, um, it truly is revolutionary. Uh, now you're, now you're, now you have 3D printing and you're printing organs. So, you know, it's just, you can go on and on and on about the, the innovation and the technology and the revolution that's happening. And I think Nativis is in the middle of that. And, uh, you know, as we continue to develop our technology, I believe you'll see what we're doing is going to emerge also as, as another, you know, type of, of personalized medicine and, and uh, ability to use data and, 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 and technology information to help patients and people in, in a multitude of ways. Definitely sounds like it. Um, I'm going to shift gears for a second, though, in my podcast. I'm sure you've listened to a few, but uh, I really like oh, yeah. to talk about who you are and uh, what you're really about. I know you mentioned about giving back and 
that's kind of why he started all that. Can you tell me why giving back and teaching other people what you know is so important to you? Well, you know, I, I believe in, in paying it forward. Uh, and, again, I think that goes back to my upbringing with my parents and my father in particular. Um, you know, I, I think that it's – I think it's our right and duty um, – to leave the play, leave this world in a better place than when we found it, um, and I think you know the youth and, and youth is the next you know generation that's going to make those changes, and hopefully while we're still around, that will they'll take care of us if we've taken care of them. Um, so it's important to me, and I, you know even to this day, I'll, I'll never turn down an opportunity if somebody reaches out, a young person, uh, and just says, "Hey, can I have you know half an hour of your time to just talk about." you can get your advice on, you know, life, career, whatever, I, you know, I'd never say no. So I think it's important for all of us to, to think about that and, and, you know, give back to, 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 to others. And again, I think if you, you know, kind of live by the golden rule, uh, I think you'll also get, you know, good, good out of it, whether it's direct or indirect. I think it's something that's really important to, uh, to think about. I think that's really cool. You do that for people. Let's talk about golf a little bit though. You're obviously highly competitive in the business world. But I also hear you're extremely competitive in golf. Can you tell me why do you play golf? What's uh, why would you pick golf over any other sport? Yeah, well, uh, Craig, again, it's something. It's a game I didn't play when I was young. Um, in fact, in high school, I you know I shouldn't say this, but as a basketball player, a lot of the basketball players, a lot of the other athletes made fun of the golfers because we didn't think it was a real sport. Um, but I was in my mid 30s, and um, after you know. 25 years or so of playing basketball and doing a lot of running and jumping, uh, my knees were wearing out. My cartilage in my knees were wearing out. So, you know, uh, my uh, sports doctor said, you, if you keep playing basketball and keep running like you are, you're going to need a total knee, you know, be, while you're too young. Um, so if you can find something else to do, it would uh, be helpful. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm very competitive, um, you know, love to, love to, uh, you know, challenge myself and challenge others. Uh, and I, I was actually it, at a, a, a training meeting when I was the division manager at Squibb. We were in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho at the uh, Coeur d'Alene Resort, one of the most beautiful places in the world and really fun golf course. And I had never played golf before. So I was training my division on a new product. And um, on you know, typically, we would give them a half a day off during the middle of the week to, to do some R&R. So a few of my reps walked in one, on Wednesday morning and said, you know, hey, Chris, can we start the meeting earlier uh, tomorrow so that uh, we can, you know, go, we, have, we, we made tea times and, you know, we're going to play it. We have a 1 o'clock tea time, so we'd like to get out a little early to get some lunch, et cetera. So everybody said, fine, we did that. And they said, well, by the way, you're going to play golf with us. And I had never played golf before. So all I could hit was a three iron. Uh, they had caddies, which was great. And uh, there's, if you know this course, they have a floating green where they actually take you out on a boat to uh, to the green. And I hit the I hit the green. <laughs> I didn't put it in the lake, and I made a par. And at that point in time, I thought this is a great game. So that's what really got me hooked. And uh, you know, I've never looked back ever since. Good deal. What's your uh, best round you've ever shot? Um, I've shot 73 multiple times. I can't, for whatever reason, uh, get below a 73. But uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, that's still one of those challenges, and hopefully, I'll, I'll I'll break it one of these days. Yeah. What would you uh, say the favorite courses you've played on in the U.S. or anywhere in the world? Well, um, you know, I've played at some really great courses. Um, obviously, a lot in Hawaii. 
I've played Riviera down in the L.A. area. I've played Pebble Beach, um, Torrey Pines, um, Kiowa Island. Um, Probably my favorite, though, um, maybe because uh, of the experience, was Congressional, which is in the Washington, D.C. area. I actually was fortunate enough to play in a pro-am there for in when tiger woods he you know he sponsors a tournament when, and it used to be played at uh, congressional and uh my ho- our host actually played with tiger so i got to walk inside the ropes um on the on, on their front nine and then uh our pro was Stuart sink who was a british open winner and uh in the pro-am we actually ended up winning the pro-am with Stuart sink so it was just a great experience and i think you know Congressional will always have a, a, a special place in my heart. That's cool. Um, what's your bucket list golf course? What, where's like your dream golf course to play on? Well, probably St. Andrews. Um, you know where, where golf was formed and founded, and, and uh, it's uh, you know oh, I, I have it on my bucket list to do a, a, an Ireland Scotland uh, you know golf trip. So hopefully uh, that'll happen in the not too distant future. Yeah. So um, one thing I think. A lot of people, a lot of people learn from sports. I believe I played sports growing up. Uh, what has golf taught you the most in business? You think? Well, it's you know it is a great place to do business. Actually, I probably have done more deals and raised more money on the golf course than just about anywhere else. You learn a lot about people. Um, you know, you learn a lot about integrity, honesty, uh, temper. Um, you know, adversity, um, strategy. So I think, you know, there are just, uh, it's, it, I think it's really, there's a lot of parallels between golf and, and, and business. And, you know, as, you know, spending four hours on a golf course with somebody, um, you'll, it's probably like spending four or five years with them in a, in a, in a, in a boardroom. So again, it's, it's, you know, after four hours, you're going to know pretty much whether or not you want to spend more time with that person. And uh, if you want to do business with them, so I think it's really a, a great um, analog to uh, to life and to go and to business. And, and again, you learn a lot about people in a very short period of time. Sounds like me, you, and my dad need to get on the course sometime and play. Some people have also told me you've been married for quite a long time and have a daughter who works over at Amazon. Can you tell me a bit about your family and why they're so important to you? Sure. Yeah. So my wife and I just celebrated our 29th anniversary uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. Um, so I'm very lucky, very fortunate. She's been very patient, um, put up with uh, all the escapades that I've gone through and the trials and tribulations. Um, I have two kids. My oldest is, a, is my daughter, as you mentioned. Uh, she went to the University of Washington and uh, now works at Amazon. So she's an Amazonian. She actually works just a few blocks from my office here in Seattle. Uh, she's doing great. In fact, she's going to get married next year. Uh, so we're very happy and proud of her for that. And my son actually just finished his master's degree uh, from Colorado State University in food science and moved back to Seattle. He's now working at a company here locally called Bulletproof 360. They're, they make coffee and nutritional products, etc. So he's doing phenomenal and uh, you know, very, couldn't be more proud of both of them. They, they've been uh, great kids and, uh, you know, some, you know, people that I, you know, admire um, because, you know, I really admire who they become and, and who they want to become as well. Seems like Amazon's really got it figured out these days. Is there any advice your daughter has given you that's helped you over at Nativas? They both do. I mean, I think um, a lot of it is, you know, I think as you get older, you kind of kind of get set in your ways and you've done things for a number of years a certain way. And I think they both have taught me over the last especially five to ten years that, 
you know, life is changing, the world is changing, you have to be open to new technology in particular. Um, so I think that's, you know, the, light, the lessons that they're kind of giving back to, to my wife and myself now. And that, uh, you know, they're, they're both very conscientious of, you know, their environment, their health, uh, what they, you know, what they, what they do, how they treat other people. So I think, again, it's just, uh, you know, I couldn't be uh, more lucky and more proud of who they've become. And, you know, like I said, I think who they're going to become over the, the, the remainder of their lives. Let's touch on one more thing before we jump into Nativus. I read an article the other day titled Biotech Jet Setter Chris Rivera. And it sounds like you've traveled all over the world trying to advance the ball in biotech. Are there any places you've traveled or seen that are absolutely a must-see for listeners? Yeah, I've been almost everywhere, uh, almost every continent, I could say. Um, I think except for probably for business, except for probably Antarctica. But um, yeah, I think reason one of the reasons that title was uh, was I actually I'm not sure it's a good thing or bad thing, but I have a million I'm a million mile flyer on United, a million mile flyer on American, and a million mile flyer on Alaska Airlines. So um, I spent a good part of my life <laughs> thirty thousand feet, you know, flying around. But um, you know, China is absolutely amazing. I've been there multiple times. Um, in fact, we're in we're in discussions with some companies there right now. Um, you know the potential for that that country is just enormous. I've been to India, same thing. I think there's you know just a huge amount of untapped potential. Australia is just amazing, beautiful country. Obviously, at, uh, at Nativus now we have a partner in Japan called Tasian, so we get to Tokyo several times a year on average. Uh, Europe is is amazing. I think I think um, it's a little bit different though for our industry because you know I think the cost of healthcare and how they approach healthcare. Is very different than the United States or, or many other countries. Um, in fact, you know, I'm on the board of a company, uh, an oncology company out of Belfast, Ireland. We just had a board meeting a few weeks ago, and so my wife and I went and spent a couple weeks in Dublin and in Belfast. And, and you know, probably if I was going to advise somebody to go somewhere that would be really a cool place to go, Ireland. I had never been before, and it's just a, a very, it's an amazing country, a lot of history, wonderful people. Wonderful music, um, you know. I guess if if I had to pick one place to go, I would say you know Ireland would be uh, a place I would recommend people put on their on their bucket list. I don't think the article is kidding. It sounds like you've done your fair share of traveling. Let's talk about what you're doing now, though. The CEO of Nativus. I know a lot of my dad's friends are invested in the company, but can you provide our listeners an easy to understand description of the insane technology taking place out there at Nativus? Sure. So kind of at a very high level, what we are able to do is record the magnetic signature of molecules. So if you think about a molecule, you know, they're all made up of electrons and and protons, right? And that's kind of what, you know, makes them work in different and unique ways and and how they interact with other molecules. So we're using technology the military developed during the Cold War called SQUID, or Superconducting Quantum Interfering Devices. These are the most sensitive listening devices known to mankind. So instead of listening to conversations halfway across the world like the military might, we actually use it to listen to minute magnetic wakes that molecules make when they sit in solution. And we have a device that's really kind of where a lot of our patents have been developed that these, what are called magnetometers, these listening devices, can measure and record that wake. So think of a boat going through the water, and you can see the wake kind of behind it. We then measure and record that wake as a digital signal. So now we have a digital signal and millions of data points. We take that data, 
and we convert it to a WAV file. So think of a, a WAV file like a song. So the analogy I use is we're recording the song of a, of a molecule. We take that WAV file and we download it to a controller. Think of that controller as your iPod. And then we replay that WAV file through a listening device or a magnetic coil. Think of that as your earbuds. And we replay that song of that molecule to create a magnetic field uh, into a biological system. And what we hope we're doing is having a similar effect that the molecule would have in, if it were sitting in that biological system. But we're not, we don't have the molecule. We don't have the chemical there. What we have is the magnetic signature of that chemical or that song. And what we're seeing is very similar effects in a variety of experiments. In vitro, which means like in petri dishes, in vivo means in animals, and then in humans. Um, we're seeing very similar responses as if the chemical were there, but the chemical's not there. Just the re magnetic recording of that chemical is there. So hope that wasn't too technical, but uh, no, it, I, it is amazing. It's a, it's a fascinating technology. We're still learning about it. We still have a, a long ways to go before we fully understand it and fully understand its potential and capabilities. But uh, it is amazing what we're starting to see in, uh, in patients, in human patients now, as well as in other, other areas that are not in, in, in the medical field itself. Yeah, I think that wasn't too technical at all. It helped me definitely understand a little bit more. I know my dad and some other people have tried to explain what you guys are doing. I've never heard firsthand from you, but uh, that helped. I'm, I listened to them, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what you guys are talking about, but that definitely helped me. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is Star Trek and Buck Rogers kind of rolled into one. Chris, I'm wanting to dive a little bit deeper into why someone would invest in Nativis. My dad's always told me one of his rules for investing is that he rarely makes plays in biotech. This is because there's never been a story he hasn't loved, meaning he likes investing in companies that are trying to help people and cure diseases. And most biotech companies, that's their main message. But he's always seems to get burnt a lot in these investments because they're feel-good stories. So tell our listeners, what do you see separating Nativis and how are you going to take this technology and amazing story and turn it into a highly profitable business? Great question. Um, so really, I think it's diversification, if I had a, a lack of a better way to, to, to put it. Um, we're really building a business strategy that's going to allow investors and potential investors multiple shots on goal to get a return on their investment. So, for example, near term, and near term I mean in the next 12 to 18 months, we have three opportunities to start generating revenue. Uh, we have three revenue, potential revenue streams. Uh, one is uh, there is a, a we, we received a designation from the FDA recently called a humanitarian, humanitarian use device designation that uh, will allow us a fast track approval for three very rare uh, brain cancers that afflict kids. Um, these, unfortunately, there's not a lot of these. There's not, fortunately, there's not a lot of kids that are diagnosed every year um, with these brain cancers. But they're they're very aggressive, and in, in some cases, most kids they, they typically are diagnosed between six and ten years old, and most of them won't live past a year. So we actually have been treating a number of these patients. We seem to be showing good effects, uh, and obviously, very safe uh, product. And we hope to submit our application to the FDA later this year and hope to have our first commercial approval in first half of 2019, which then would allow us to start to commercialize or sell 
the technology to, uh, to for these patients, which would be, again, obviously our first revenue stream. Uh, our next area, we also have been uh, treating uh, patients with glioblastoma. So obviously in the last week, uh, glioblastoma has been in the headlines with, with Senator John McCain's passing. That's what he, what he was diagnosed or what he was afflicted with. Uh, we have some very good um, phase two data that shows we're, we're improving survival by about three to four months. Um, and there's a pathway in Europe um, that will allow us to receive our regulatory approval. Hopefully, again, we hope to submit our application. It's called a CE mark. We hope to submit our application uh, before the end of this year and hope to receive approval and uh, in, in, in hope to get our CE mark approved first half of next year. We already are in discussions with a number of companies um, in Europe, obviously, but there's other countries that will accept a CE mark for a regulatory approval like Canada and Australia and India and China and even Japan. So there's a number of other countries that and, and companies we're talking to in those territories that would license the technology from us um, for glioblastoma and then begin to apply locally to their regulatory authorities for approval and then uh, reimbursement. So we would like to see hopefully revenue for glioblastoma and a CE mark late 2019 or early 2020. And then last but not least, um, you know, I mentioned that we can record molecules of a variety of, of ways. We've actually recorded alcohol, drinking alcohol, and uh, we have a group out of Canada right now that uh, is raising money to license uh, not only alcohol or ethanol, but other um, several other non-prescription uses of our technology that they could then start to sell um, theoretically over the internet. Uh, and, and, and as early as 2019 again. So near term, we have some, some multiple opportunities for, for revenue, uh, op, uh, which obviously then um, creates an opportunity for us to go out and raise money through public offerings or through, you know, even acquisition, et cetera. And we have a number of uh, ongoing discussions to, to look at what our strategy will be to create a liquidity event for our, for our investors. And then obviously, Glioblastoma, that's going to take a little longer, a few more years to receive regulatory approval. But uh, there's another company out there called Novacure that has a device that's approved for glioblastoma. Um, they're generating about $250 million a year in revenue, and their, their, public, their market cap is over about $3.5 billion or even more than that on certain days. So, you know, we can see a clear pathway to create value for shareholders. And at the same time, do really good things for uh, for patients with a variety of diseases. I know you mentioned something about the Bacardi deal, but I want to talk a little bit more about it. I know you had one on display at the Memphis in May deal. My dad was trying to tell me all about it, and I just couldn't grasp my hands around it. So I want you to tell me yourself. So what I get is you can simply put a small halo band around your head and become intoxicated with Bacardi in about 10 minutes without even drinking a drop of liquor. Is that really true? It's really true. Um, I've done it myself. <laughs> we probably have had four or five dozen people try it, and I would say nine out of ten of them have said, yeah, I feel the effect. The other, the one out of the ten that, that deny it or say no, uh, many of them have, uh, you see their eyes get uh, dilated and kind of flush in the, in the face and even belligerent or terse personality changes. But, yeah, no, it really does. It does work. Um, you know, it doesn't feel exactly like you drank a bunch of Bacardi, but it does feel uh, like an alcohol-like effect. 
Um, and typically after five or ten minutes, people start to, to say, yeah, they feel it. And, and then t once you take the, the halo off or the coil off your head, typically within 30 or so minutes, the effect is pretty much gone and really no, no residual effects after that that, that we've seen. So um, it, is, it is pretty, pretty crazy when, we, when we're talking to potential investors or partners. We usually bring, bring out the coil and you know, tell them about it, and, and we call it our stupid human, human trick. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, is, you know, it is also a way that we tell people about the technology, and they say there's no way this could you could be doing this, and then they try the, uh, the, the, the 151. Um, they also they also so then they realize that there is something to what we're doing, and, and uh, you know it, it does have a tremendous amount of potential. That really sounds like some disruptive technology that's going to impact the future. I think we're actually going to have one on display uh, in November at the Van Trump Conference. That'll be really cool, and I think that's something people will really look forward to watching and seeing happen in person. Before I wrap things up, though, I would love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that has changed or had the most impact on Chris Rivera. Sure. Um, I was actually honored and fortunate uh, to be asked to give the commencement speech at the um, College of Biology at the University of Washington a couple of years ago, and you know, kind of the parting words of advice that I gave to them, to those kids that are, you know, 600 plus graduates, um, was similar to what I'll what I'll tell your listeners now. But you know, my my father, when I was growing up, used to tell me that the most important thing you can invest in in your life is is uh, in your education. You know, he used to tell me, you know. People can take away your car, they can take away your house, they can take your money, but they can never take your education. And, uh, you know, I told those kids they, they'd taken the first step in, in, you know, making that investment in themselves. And I would advise anybody, even if, you know, even if you've got your college degree or, you know, never stop learning. Always, my father was a voracious reader. You know, he never had a formal education because he uh, he enlisted in, in, in the Army Air Corps on December 8th, 1941, after Pearl Harbor, and came back from the war and married my mom and, you know, never went back to, to college to finish his degree, but he was one of the smartest people I ever met because he, he read all the time anything and everything. Um, and then the other is probably from, you know, Henry Tamir, the CEO, uh, past CEO at, at uh, Genzyme, who you know really pioneered a business model in the pharmaceutical industry that nobody had ever seen before, looking at these orphan or rare diseases and building a, a, a business uh, and, a, and a business model that many companies now are trying to emulate, including ourselves here at Nativis. But um, you know, Genzyme was acquired for twenty billion dollars by Sanofi back in 2011, and it really was his 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 mastermind. But you know, one of the things he he, he he used to say and, and emulate was, you know, be willing to take risks, um, calculate a risk, don't give up. You know, you're gonna you're gonna hit roadblocks. You need to figure a way around them. Um, but you know, don't be afraid to try things that nobody's ever done before. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of my you know willingness to you know go to Life Science Washington, go to Tersica, start Hyperion Therapeutics, and come here to Nativis came from. You know, not everything's gonna work out. Um, like I said, I've, I've failed many times in my, in my life and probably will again at some point in time. But, uh, you know, those are probably two of the, the messages, I think, that really, you know, really motivate me and, and, and motive, you know, motivate me to continue to do what I do 
Um, and again, it worked for me and, you know, hopefully will work for, for others that might be listening to this. I think that's some really good advice, Chris. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I'm blessed to have you. I've learned a lot. I think the listeners are going to learn even more. But I encourage everybody to go to www.farmtank.com to subscribe to get my podcast and exclusive content called Farm Tank Fridays. Uh, I encourage everybody to go to Facebook, like my page, follow me on Twitter at Farm Tank, follow me on Instagram at Farm Tank. I think that's all the time we have for today. Be on the lookout for my next podcast with Howard Getson and my personal experience at Austin City Limits. That's going to conclude this session of Farm Tank.